Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 26. Um, Acts chapter 26 is where um, we will begin spending by spending a portion of our um, time together tonight uh, reflecting on some of the thoughts and statements that are made between this interaction between Paul and King Agrippa. While you're turning to Acts chapter 26, just wanted to take a moment to extend a warm welcome to each and every one of you. It's a beautiful day that God has given us, and I can't think of a better way to conclude our Sunday um, evening than by spending it with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. About, I guess at this point, two months ago, around the beginning of April, I made it a point to myself to um, pick a book of the Bible and read it from beginning to end um, and start getting in the habit of, of doing that. And the first chapter that kind of came to my mind that I wanted to begin reading was the book of Acts. And um, maybe like many of you, I've spent a lot of time in Acts, maybe reading different uh, chapters here and there, different passages over the course of my life. But I never paused to just read it from beginning to end. And so as I was making my way through the book of Acts, I kind of came to chapter 26 and there towards the end. And this interaction between uh, King Agrippa and Paul uh, stuck out to me a little bit more than it has in the past. I've, I've read this passage several times in various Bible classes or maybe heard sermons preached on this before. But the uh, conversation or um, interaction that took place between these two men just stuck out to me a little bit more than I uh, thought or than it had to me in the past. And so tonight I want to take a look at a few of these, um, a few thoughts and a few lessons that we can take away from this chapter. Um, but before we begin reading uh, Acts chapter 26, I think it would be helpful to get some background information to understand why we are here or why Paul is where he is today. Uh, we know that Acts chapter 26 takes place in uh, Caesarea, and Paul is standing before King Agrippa and Festus. And he's doing this because of the uh, Jews are wishing to um, seize him and kill him because they're not happy with the things that he is doing. And so as I was reflecting on uh, this moment that Paul is in, something that kind of stuck out to me was how it must have felt for Paul to stand in front of a king and to stand in front of Festus, you know, these two very powerful men uh, for that time. I often wondered, was he, maybe, was he nervous? Did he have butterflies in his stomach? Or was he cool, calm, and collective? And for Paul, this was just another day in the life for him. It wasn't anything too crazy. Um, that was just something that, that kind of stuck with me throughout my reading of this chapter. But Paul begins in uh, verse 4 of Acts chapter 26, reflecting and, and telling Agrippa why he is uh, where he is today and, and really how we got there. He does a good job of recapping the, uh, basically his life for us. In beginning of verse 4, he says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest part of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He continues in verse 9 by saying, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem, and not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when, uh, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." 
So in those first uh, few verses there, we see Paul's sort of recounting how he spent a lot of his life sort of doing the bidding for the Jews. He willingly went out, he persecuted Christians, he dragged them from their homes, he you know, casted votes to kill these people, and he saw no problem with it. And in fact, uh, as he said, the chief priests you know, applauded him for it. They gave him this approval, which begs the question to ask, what happened to Paul that made him change his life forever? What life-altering event occurred? Was it simply he woke up one day and got bored of what he was doing and wanted to change his career path? I don't think that's the case. And he didn't change or wake up one day and say, you know, I don't like being on the road all the time. I would rather just stay at home. That's not what happened either. And in fact, Paul continues in verses 12 through 18 and recounts the interaction and, and the, um, uh, uh, the conversation he had with, with Jesus while he was on the road to Damascus. And we won't read those 12 verses there, but We've seen these first 18 verses of chapter 26 that he spent time telling Agrippa and Festus about what his life was like before Jesus when he was out persecuting and killing Christians. And then he tells of how Jesus changed his life. And he kind of starts to begin making his closing argument here in verse 19 or wrapping up his defense. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to me. And so he's making this defense before, these, before Festus and before Agrippa, and during the middle of this, you, you sort of see Festus jump in here and kind of interject himself and, and basically say in verse 24, say, Paul, you've gone mad. You have absolutely lost your mind. And then beginning in verse 25, and this will really be the focus of our study and some of the lessons that I hoped that, uh, to, to share with you tonight is Paul's response and then Agrippa's response to Paul. But in verse 25, it says, Paul said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, or Festus, excuse me, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his notice, uh, since these things have not been done in a corner. Now I imagine him in verse 27 sort of turning from Festus back to Agrippa, and says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Probably a famous line that we are very familiar with and have read multiple times. And it's that conversation, this interaction of Paul being on trial that I want to spend some time focusing on with you tonight. I believe there's a lesson here that we can take away from Paul, as well as a lesson we can take away from Agrippa and his response to Paul. Um, and these are just some things I want to focus with on you tonight. So I think the first lesson that we sort of learned from Paul is that he never missed out or never forsook an opportunity to preach the gospel. Isn't that an amazing idea or amazing thought to have that here Paul is, he's standing before two very powerful men at this moment in time, and he's ultimately having to make the case for his survival of why he shouldn't be put to death. And I'll tell you, I've never been in that experience that Paul's been in where I'm on trial for my survival, but I wouldn't have seen this as an opportunity to tell these two men about Jesus and to tell them how my life was changed uh, by Jesus. But that's not what Paul did. Whereas I would have said, you know, I'll pay you whatever amount of money you want. I'll walk your dog. I'll, you know, mow the lawn, etc. Paul said, let me tell you about my life before Jesus and then the interaction that I had with Jesus 
and how, as a result, my life has been changed forever because of that. That's a powerful thing we can take away. And with this, I have two, um, I guess, uh, sub-thoughts or sub-additional points, I guess I should just call them, uh, that, that sort of tie into that overarching theme of Paul never missing an opportunity to spread the gospel. And the first one is that for Paul, there is nobody too great or too small to hear the gospel. We see a few examples of this in the book of Acts. Uh, the first two I have come from Acts chapter 16, if you would like to turn there. Um, Acts chapter 16. We will be looking at verses 13 through 15. And in the first verse that we'll look at, our first passage, this is looking at the conversion of Lydia. It reads in verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. Uh, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. But that's not the only example we see in Acts chapter 16. If you look a few verses ahead in verse, uh, verses 27 through 33, we see the story of the Philippian jailer who was converted. And in this passage, uh, Paul and Silas have been imprisoned, and they are in their cell when an earthquake happens that opens up the doors that they are in. So we pick up in verse 23, and it says, When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. So here Paul is, and here he is with Silas. And they have an opportunity. The doors to the prison that they're in break free. They can easily run and escape. Out of all the prisoners that they were there, they have probably good odds of escaping this one jailer that's keeping them there. But that's not what they do. They stop this man. They stop this jailer, and they talk to him about Christ. They, they share the word of God with him. And as a result, this man and his whole household believed and were baptized. So we have this example of Lydia, this example of the Philippian jailer, and then we also see how he was willing to share the, the word of God with Agrippa and with Festus. That's a powerful thing to realize that he, as a person as simple as a jailer all the way up to the king had Paul's, uh, Paul was intent on making sure these people you know, um, were, were hearing the word of God and hearing about the, the good news. I simply ask to that, when we look at ourselves, do we have that same attitude as Paul? Do we have the, the mindset that he had where everybody deserves to hear the gospel? He was willing to speak to anyone and everyone about God, and are we willing to do that? Or do we set up barriers for ourselves? Do we look at co-workers, family members, friends, and we say, well, I can't talk to those people about Christ. That's just weird. You know, it could be with our co-workers. We say, well, I, you know, I talk to them about work stuff, and I may ask them on Mondays, you know, how their weekend went, or on Fridays, what their weekend plans are. But aside from that, I, I don't have any interest in talking to them about these things outside of the hours of 9 to 5. Or maybe it's with our family. It's, well, you know, they believe different than I do, and I don't want to ruffle uh, that nest and cause a disturbance there. 
Or maybe it's with our friends. It's, well, you know, when I'm with my friends, that's not a time to get religious. That's not a time to talk to people about their salvation. When I'm with my friends, I want to have fun. I want to make memories. And I don't want to be that, that person that makes it uncomfortable to talk about these things. But that's not the attitude that Paul has. If you'll turn with me over to the book of 1 Timothy, we'll see this thought continued. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 16. And Paul is writing to Timothy, um, and he says, beginning in verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul kind of says, you know, of all the people in the world that received mercy, that received forgiveness, I received that. I was a sinner just like anybody else. And I had done very bad things, but Jesus still chose to forgive me. Jesus still showed to have mercy on me. And he carried that idea with him throughout his teachings. And for him, there was nobody that was too rich, too poor, too powerful, too popular. Um, Everybody needed to hear the word of God. So is that the attitude that we have? Because I simply ask that question, because if we do, that leads into um, my, my second thought on this point, which is that we need to realize Christianity is a teaching religion. And it's our job as Christians to spread the word of God. We're not to be idle. Um, it's not a job that we delegate, spreading the word of God. It's not something that we, that we outsource to a third party, or it's not something that we leave up to our preachers to do. We all have that obligation uh, to do. Mark chapter 16, verse 15 says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Are we doing that? Are we teaching others about Christ? Because there certainly is a need for it in this world today. I think you cannot look into this world and say, Well, there's too much Jesus in this world right now. Everybody in this world desperately needs Jesus. So are we sharing the message with these people? And I'll admit I struggle with this idea as well of, of you know, putting myself out there and talking to people about Christ and, and the hope that we have in Him. So the question might be, well, how do you start? How do you kind of get outside that comfort zone? And I think we can take a lesson from Paul and how he approached the situation with Agrippa in that he simply told his story. He told these two men you know, what his life was like before Jesus and then how Jesus changed his life. But Paul's not the only example we have in the Bible of you know, telling people your story. In fact, if you turn with me to Mark chapter 5, Verse 18, we get another example in Mark chapter 5. Uh, it's, it's an example from the demon-possessed man. Mark chapter 5, we'll look at verses 18 through 20. But for those who aren't familiar with this story, there was a man who was possessed by demons. In fact, we read in Mark 5 verse 9 that there were so many that uh, he replied to Jesus, My name is Legion, for we are many. So this man has spent a, a good portion of his life being inflicted and, and being possessed by demons. So Jesus comes along and he casts those demons out. We pick up in verse 18 and it reads, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him to go, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away uh, and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. 
and everyone marveled. We see this man who spent, as I said, a good portion of his life being afflicted by demons. And the moment that Jesus casts these demons out, he goes back to his town and he shares what Jesus has done for him with the people in his town. But we also see later on in John chapter 4, we get another example of this from the Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4, and we'll look at verses um, 28 through 30. There's this woman at the well that Jesus meets, and he begins to tell her many things about her life that she did not think that anybody else knew. And so after he tells her these things, we pick up in verse 28, and it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. And then we flip over uh, to verses 39 through 42 as this story continues to unfold. It says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. But pay attention to what's said here in verse 42, So I think this is, this is a very powerful uh, takeaway here. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I think that that's a thought there in verse 42 that we can apply to our lives. You know, oftentimes our conversations may start with, in this example, of telling others about our interaction with Jesus, how Jesus has changed our life. And then it gets to the point where that person goes, it's no longer because of what Bryce is saying that I believe. It's because I've opened the Bible, I've studied the Bible, and I've read this, and I understand that Jesus is our Savior, that Jesus is the key to everlasting life. And it's a powerful thing to consider from these people is that if, if we're struggling to begin having those conversations, it could just be as simple as telling people how Jesus has impacted our life and how he's changed them for the better. But that's not the only lesson that I think we can take away from Acts chapter 26. I think the second point that we can learn from is that, uh, similar to Agrippa and this conversation he had with Paul, is that almost everyone we speak to is, is going to know something about the Bible. They may have a baseline knowledge, um, that, but they will know something about the Bible and about Jesus. And, and we can use what they know to help them you know, build a foundation and grow cro- closer to Christ. We saw this in Acts 26 and verse 26 when Paul says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, but this has not been done in a corner. And similar to Paul, the majority of the people that we talk to, they're not going to be biblical scholars. In fact, I would say a lot of people in this audience may know more about the Bible than people that we're talking to on a daily basis. And we can use what they know to help them build that foundation. And we've seen an example of this uh, from Paul, rather, in, in uh, Acts 17, uh, if you want to turn with me there. So to Acts chapter 17, we see an example from him when he's in Athens. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 24 to start. So Paul is speaking to the men of Athens as we read in verse 22. It says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And Paul continues 
through these verses. I believe it leads up to about verse uh, 31, describing this uh, you know, unknown God that the Athenians had built an altar to. They had altars built for all these various different gods, but there's just one that they just couldn't you know, figure out who it was. And so Paul comes in, and he doesn't you know, address them and mock them and say, you people are so stupid, you think there's all these many gods. Don't you know that there's only one God? He begins by addressing them and saying, look, I, I see that you take religion very seriously. I see that you have all these altars. You even have one to this unknown God. Well, let me tell you about that unknown God. And what was the result of his way of treating them with, with some respect and, and with you know, showing them the truth about God? We'll pick up in verse 32 where it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. That's an important lesson that we can take away from Paul. But we see another example later on in the book of Acts that comes from Priscilla and Aquila. And this time they're talking um, to a man, Apollos, who he had a fervor and a passion for speaking uh, about Christ and for sharing the good news. But his teachings weren't always accurate, um, and they wished to correct him on that. And so in verse 24, we begin, and it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross uh, to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So here we see in this example is this man, he was preaching to others, he was proclaiming Christ. And Priscilla and Aquila come by and they notice that well, he has this passion. Some of the things he's saying aren't entirely accurate. And so they didn't walk up to him and embarrass him in front of everybody and call him out. They pulled him aside and they explained, as we read in verse uh, 20, I believe it's 25, that they explained him the way of God more accurately. And as a result of that, this man went, went around, and he, as we read in verse 27, he helped those believe. And that's something that we can take away as well, is that there's going to be a lot of times in our life when the people we're talking to, they only have a small understanding or may not have the, you know, they may not be a biblical scholar, but we can help use the foundations they have to build a faith in Christ and to help them confess Christ as their Savior. And similar to my first point, I have um, two additional sub-thoughts uh, that, that kind of appeared on this or came to me uh, whenever I was writing this. And first one is that all we can do when talking to people is try to ultimately persuade them to confess Christ. We cannot force them into making that decision. It's something that they have to make on their own. And the sad thing is, and the unfortunate thing is, is that oftentimes the people we speak to are not going to want to make that confession. They will not want to confess Christ. They may stay in that camp of King Agrippa where they're almost persuaded. They've heard the word of God. They know the necessary steps that are needed to be taken to become a Christian. But maybe to them it's just not important right now. They think, well, you know what, I can just kick that can down the road. Or, you know, maybe I, you know, I'm doing okay in life right now. I don't, I don't really need God in my life right now, so... I'll come back to that when, when I need him to help me with something. And that can especially be hard when we're talking to our friends and to our family, and they share with us that they don't have that same desire that we have, which is to be with God in heaven forever. 
But as we're commanded in Mark, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, our job is to carry on to the next person and to carry on to the next set of ears that are willing to listen. As I said, Matthew 10, 14 reads, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet, and when you leave that house or town. I think our second point that, that ties into that is we're commanded in Colossians 4, verse 6, that our speech be seasoned with salt. And there's nothing wrong with you know, using our background or people's life experiences and, and their backgrounds to attempt to persuade them to come to Christ. But ultimately, the only way that we can get people to um, confess Christ is through sharing the truth with them and, and using the truth only. And we see Paul did this um, in Acts chapter 26. He calls us out in verses 22 and 23. Now he spoke the truth to the people according to what was told by the prophets and what was told by Moses. He didn't go around making bold, you know, egregious claims saying that, you know, if you become a Christian, all your problems go away. You'll never have any issues again. He told them the truth. He told them about Jesus. And that's something we can take away from him as well, is sticking to the truth and allowing the truth to draw people closer to Christ. And then thirdly, I think a lesson that we can take from King Agrippa out of all of this is that there may be many of us in this audience who are like Agrippa and we're almost persuaded. And to that I simply ask, what's, what's in your way from becoming a Christian? What's holding you back from making that confession and committing your life to Christ? And as I was thinking about what was running through King Agrippa's head, what left him in that category of being almost persuaded, you know, what, what was holding him back? And some of the thoughts that I came up with, I won't, I'll say these aren't the you know, final answers, but maybe I thought you know, maybe he was almost persuaded, but he didn't think he knew enough. He, he had some understanding, but he wasn't fully there and didn't think he could take that next step. And I mean, I think everybody in here tonight has had that feeling before where you don't feel like you know enough, you feel like you could certainly do better. And if that's somebody who's here tonight where you're almost persuaded, but you just don't think you know enough to become a Christian, well, don't let that hold you back. If it's takes a Bible study or takes uh, you know, setting up time to, to have coffee and, and dive deeper into the Bible together to increase that knowledge, we can do that. But don't let that be your hindrance from becoming a Christian. Or maybe it's you're almost persuaded, but you think you've messed up too much in your past and you can't be forgiven for that. We know that that's simply not true. God can forgive you of your past. God will forgive you of your past. And at the end of the day, God still loves each and every one of us, and he always will. And all he wants is for each and every one of us to be with him in heaven. And that's an important thing to remember is that regardless of what you've done, the sins you've had, God will still forgive you and he still wants you to be with him. It could also be maybe you're almost persuaded, but what if you mess up again? What if you fail and let you know, your fellow Christians down, let God down and leave him disappointing? Well, the good news is that becoming a Christian doesn't mean you have to be perfect. I think everybody in this audience will admit that we've all fallen down, we've all sinned and you know, stumbled. It also doesn't mean that we won't have trials in our lives. We won't go through hardships. Now, we'll still experience those things. We'll still sin. We'll still mess up. But the good news is that God is always there to pick us up, and God will always be there to help us. Or maybe, and this is one I think maybe might have been what, what was going through Agrippa's head, is maybe... You know, you're almost persuaded, but you like what the rest of the world has to offer. And you don't, you don't want to stop living like the rest of the world. And with, I guess, everything going on in today's world, I simply, you know, ask, you know, why do you feel that way? What in the world seems more enticing than living a life that's glorifying God and honoring God? When I look out at the world today and see everything that's going on, 
I don't see a world that's glorifying God. I see a world that's broken, a world that's full of sin, evil, hatefulness. And it doesn't seem enticing at all to live like that. It seems rather uh, disheartening and um, it just does not seem to be a way to, to live a life. But I think most importantly and above all of those points is if you're almost persuaded to become a Christian, where are you turning to for your salvation? I think that's the most important point. The final verse I want to look at with you this evening comes from John chapter 6. If you would like to turn there. John chapter 6. And for the sake of time, I won't read this whole chapter with you because it is rather lengthy. So I'll give the uh, Spark Notes version of this. But while you're turning there, in, in John chapter 6, Jesus has just um, fed the 5,000. And as he's wrapping up, he heads out and he heads to um, Capernaum. And so the crowd disperses, and the next day they come together, and they're looking for Jesus, but they don't see him where they thought they would see him, so they head out and you know, begin searching for him. And they come to Capernaum, and they see him, and they say, well, Jesus, when did you come here? When did you, when did you get here? And in verse uh, 26, Jesus responds simply, and you know, I guess how I would say it is, you know, he said, you didn't come here because you saw the signs I performed, you didn't see the miracles I performed and believed, you're here today because I filled your stomachs and gave you food to eat. And after he makes that statement, he carries on in the following verses from about verse uh, 27 to about verse 65, telling these people um, and this crowd of people some truths that I don't think that they wanted to hear. I don't think maybe they, they didn't expect to hear it, uh, especially uh, on this day. And so after Jesus had finished talking to them, we see that many of the people were discouraged and they stopped following him. And we'll pick up in verse 66. It says, and, and, and after many of this, um, his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? But pay attention to what Simon Peter says in verse 68. So Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And isn't that a powerful thought from Simon Peter? Jesus has the words of eternal life. That's an important thing to realize. simple fact of the matter is that there is nothing in this world that will bring you salvation. It does not matter you know, how much money you have in the bank. That won't get you to heaven. It does not matter how big your house is or even if you own multiple houses. That will not get you to heaven. It doesn't matter the car you have, the number of cars that you can drive. That won't get you to heaven doesn't matter how far you've progressed in your career. doesn't matter the degree that you have, the types of degrees, how many degrees. That doesn't matter to God. doesn't matter how many vacations you went on. doesn't matter how popular you are. What matters is, are you right with God? So where are you looking to your salvation for? Are you putting your hope and everlasting life in the things of this world? Is that where you're storing your treasures? Or are you looking to Jesus as that hope and as that key to everlasting life? So maybe there's some among us tonight who fall into that camp of, you know, maybe not being like Paul as we should be, not having that willingness to serve the Lord, to spread the gospel as we know we should. And if that's something that's holding you back, we can certainly help you with that. Or maybe there's somebody here tonight or somebody watching on the live stream that maybe you're in that camp, you're, you're sitting alongside King Agrippa and you're almost persuaded. Well, whatever that it is that is making you stay in that almost persuaded camp and not wanting to make a decision. What can you do, what can we do to help you with that? There's plenty of people here that are more than willing to help you 
become a Christian because they want to see you enter the gates of heaven. Or maybe there's somebody here tonight that has spent a lot of time looking at the Bible, reflecting on the Bible, and they understand that you know, becoming a Christian is a very important decision. It's something that needs to be done, and it is the only path to heaven. That's the key to eternal life. Is by, or The first step is by proclaiming Jesus Christ and being baptized. If there's anything that we can do for you tonight, please let us know as we stand and as we sing.